Good afternoon. It's Friday the 3rd of June 2022, just after one o'clock. Welcome to UK Column News. I'm your host, Mike Robinson. Joining me in the studio today, Patrick Henningsen from 21st Century Wire. Welcome to the program, Patrick. Great to be with you, Mike. And also joining us is uh, Ian Davis from InThisTogether.com. Uh, and well, we're just going to kick off here uh, with an acknowledgement, Patrick, that uh, it is 100 days uh, since the beginning of the conflict in Ukraine. We'll be coming on to Ukraine matters in a second, but I think it's important to note that. Yeah, yeah, we will. We've got a lot to, a lot of ground to cover there. Yes. Okay. So, uh, but let's start by uh, welcoming Ian to the program. Ian, uh, we've been talking about uh, you and I've been talking about uh, mortality statistics and all-cause mortality statistics, um, and uh, you highlighted uh, a little piece of video. Um, if you just like to introduce the first clip, and this is talking about uh, the. Uh, potential apartheid that's building in the United States between the vaccinated and the unvaccinated. That, um, ...that took place in December 2021. Uh, and the, the gentleman was uh, uh, Scott Davidson, who's CEO of a, a large uh, American health insurance uh, company called One America. Um, and he um, was speaking about a significant increase in um, all-cause mortality in an unusual age group, which was, uh, he was talking about people of working age, so 18 to 64, but he was specifically talking about 18 to 45, I believe. Um, but the, the point is uh, that what that led, that what the discussion showed was how corporate America, and we can, and I think whatever we discuss in terms of what's going on in America will, is likely to be mirrored here, the similar situation, um, is effectively creating an apartheid system in the workplace, but also, you know, with, in, in terms of insurance, which the knock-on effect of that is health cover um, and so forth. Okay, so let's have a look at this first clip. I'll just make two points, but before I do, just... If you're not familiar with One America, we're a $100 billion uh, life insurance and retirement company, been headquartered in Indianapolis since 1877. We have 2,400 employees, about two thirds of them are in downtown Indianapolis. So at One America, because we're primarily office work, nearly all of our employees have been home for nearly two years. And we're getting to the point where that's just not working anymore. And we feel very strongly that for us to be fully effective as a business that we need to have people back in on a hybrid schedule. Um, the challenge we have is that 84% uh, of our people are vaccinated and we have heard loud and clear from our vaccinated employees that they want no part of working in an open office environment with unvaccinated uh, associates. And uh, some have made it very, very clear that if we try to commingle them with um, uh, with unvaccinated people, they'll consider that our workplace is not safe, even though we have medical grade uh, HVAC in our buildings. Um, and we're pretty sure we're gonna lose a number of highly valuable uh, vaccinated associates if we try to co-mingle. So given that, and that we feel once we get through this Omicron wave that we need to be back in on a hybrid schedule, uh, that we've had to make the hard decision to require vaccinations. Um, we think the impact on our business of requiring vaccination will be very light, uh, but we feel if we don't require vaccinations, we're, we're really going to struggle to attract the type of people uh, that want to work in, in our company. 
So that's usually interesting, Ian, because he is describing mm. uh, corporate America uh, effectively doing the mandate uh, on behalf of the uh, politicians. Uh, just a reminder, that was from December 2021, uh, but but it's that's a pretty strong position to take. Yeah, and I, and I think it's something that you know a, a few of us have been talking about for a while. Is that you know, it, it's not necessarily you know it's not necessary to have uh, an official mandate. The the you know the, this can effectively work if, and this is I think the basis and something that we're going to go on to discuss if people accept the narrative, because the narrative is being managed in the States um, through the CDC to create uh, a belief, a belief that, I mean, on, on the face of it, obviously the idea that if you're vaccinated, that the unvaccinated present a threat to you, obviously that brings the efficacy of vaccines into question. But as long as people accept this overar overarching narrative, which is being delivered by the CDC through what can only be described as statistical manipulation um, and is not borne out by the by the statistics of, for example, the insurance companies, um, then, you know, then people can believe that to, the, to such an extent that they are they are in effect holding their own employers to, you know, to blackmailing their own employers that they won't work in a workplace that has got vaccinated people, unvaccinated people in it. Yes. And just, just to reiterate, what, which, uh, which statistics are the CDC um, uh, manipulating uh, specifically? Well, we're going to come I'll, on to that. We're going to come on to that now. Yes. Okay, okay well, let, let's have a look at the, uh, at the second clip here where he's talking about uh, excess mortality. One of our businesses is that we offer group life and disability insurance to employers. And we are seeing right now the highest death rates we have ever seen in the history of this business, not just at One America. The, the data is consistent across every player uh, in, in, that, in that business. Now, this is primarily um, working age people, 18 to 64, that are in employers like all the employers on, on the screen here. And what we saw just in third quarter, we're seeing it continue into fourth quarter, is that uh, death rates are up 40% over what they were pre-pandemic. Now, just to give you a, a, an idea of how bad that is, a three sigma or a one in 200 year uh, catastrophe would be 10% increase uh, over pre-pandemic. So 40% uh, is just unheard of. And what the data is showing to us is that um, the deaths that are being reported as COVID deaths greatly understate the actual death losses among working age people from the pandemic. It may not all be COVID on their death certificate, but deaths are up uh, at just a huge, huge numbers. So two things to, to note there in, first of all, the acknowledgement of excess mortality. Uh, but also with the fact that he's attempting to explain that in a particular way. Yeah, and I think that's the key. It, the, the key is that clearly there is significant excess mortality in an unusual age group, the, the work, working age people. Um, but he, I mean, you can't, I'm not, not uh, suggesting that there's, that there's anything, you know, or he's got any ulterior motives, but he understands that to mean deaths associated to COVID-19. And the reason that he 
I, I suspect that he believes that and why probably the vast majority of his workforce believe that is because that is the way the narrative is being created and also the way that the um, CDC are interpreting the statistics. As, okay. as well, let's, let's bring uh, cumulative, cumulative all-cause mortality uh, statistics on screen here, Ian, and uh, just give us your thoughts on this. Yeah, so what we're seeing is, I mean, obviously we're talking, we're, we're moving into 2022 now, and although it's not very clear, if you look, there's a little red line for excess deaths in 2022. So supposedly we are coming to the tail end of a pandemic. Um, and also, obviously, we're moving into to May, where you would expect mortality to start dropping anyway due to, um, you know, seasonal variation. But what we're seeing is that in the year of the pandemic itself, which we, you know, when it was supposedly at its worst, which is what you would expect from a respiratory virus, the initial impact is always worse from a respiratory virus. Um, you know, we see that actually mortality has increased, and that's the blue line above uh, in 2021, and it is continuing to increase even further in 2022. So. Shall we move on to the next? Yeah, so now we've got, uh, this is uh, some statistics, all-cause mortality in the US. The United States reported 3.4 million deaths of all ages in the year 2020. Expected deaths were uh, 3 million. Uh, that's an increase of 13.6%. Uh, the United States reported 3.4 million deaths for all ages in 2021. Expected deaths were 2.9 million. That's an increase of 16.4%. And to date for the year 2022, the US has reported 1.2 million deaths for all ages. Expected deaths thus far were, were 1 million, uh, and that's an increase of 13% is what uh, this uh, is saying. Yeah, so, I mean, you've got to bear in mind that the statistics are for the percentage increase over an estimated or a calculated average. Um, so if you change the basis for how you calculate that average, you are going to change the basis upon which those statistics are reported. Right. So that's a very important point, And it's one we'll come on to when we get onto the UK statistics. Uh, but let's move on with this then. Uh, the US CDC have a new explanation for excess deaths associ associated with COVID-19. Uh, some deaths due to COVID-19 may be as assigned to other causes of deaths, for example, if COVID-19 was not diagnosed or mentioned on the death certificate, tracking all-cause mortality can provide information about whether an excess number of deaths is observed, even when COVID-19 mortality may be undercounted. Additionally, deaths from all causes, excluding COVID-19, were also estimated. Comparing these two sets of estimates, excess deaths with and without COVID-19 can provide insight on how many excess deaths are identified due to COVID-19, how many excess deaths were reported as due to other causes of death, these deaths could represent misclassification of COVID-19 deaths or potentially could be indirectly related to the COVID-19 pandemic, uh, e.g. deaths from other causes occurring in the context of healthcare shortages or overburdened healthcare systems. Ah, that's interesting. Yeah, so what, what this seems to be is a, 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 a way of viewing the excess mortality that you know can only be caused you would imagine if if the problem is access to healthcare is caused by essentially policy decisions but calling that covid related 
So you so you take you take something uh, a mortality increase which is acknowledged by the CDC to be caused effectively by policy, but then attribute that to com the complications of COVID nineteen. Okay, so they go on. The US CDC have changed how they calculate excess mortality in November seventeen twenty. 21, the algorithm used to estimate excess deaths was modified to include six years of prior data rather than four, uh, which had been used to date. This change resulted in the increase in weekly expected numbers of deaths by an average of 2% through the pandemic. Uh, the increase in the expected numbers of deaths resulted in a decrease in the estimates of total excess deaths, but these estimates were within the range of previously published values. And you're asking two questions here. Have the CDC been hiding excess mortality since November 2021, and the second one is, uh, or your the question is, reported excess mortality was methodologically higher during 2020 and 2021. And I have to say, Ian, this is exactly what was done in the UK by the Office for National Statistics, where they used a five-year average for the two years of the so-called pandemic, which was uh, the five years up until 2019. And then come 2022, they've decided to include uh, the years of the pandemic in the five-year average. Uh, and of course, that means that it's very, very hard in 2022 to compare uh, mortality this year to the previous two years and make a decision what uh, is what you might consider excess. Yeah, and I think we need to look at the, the, the effect of this change more closely because they're saying it's a 2% variation. What they're not saying and what isn't evident, evident from, their, from their data sets is that they retrospectively changed the the uh, that accounted for that two percent uh, variation prior to the change, which was in November twenty twenty one. So the figures that they produced after twenty twenty one, November twenty twenty one, are statistically different in the in the, the methodology than than they were prior to that. There's no evidence that they retrospectively changed them before that. So what they're effectively doing is is reducing. The, how they how they calculate excess mortality post November twenty twenty one, as as averse to how they were calculating it prior to that. So why? So and and that that's the point. Why would you now want to reduce excess mortality, which is what they appear to be doing? Now they're saying the variation is only two percent. I, I think I would be I would need to, and I haven't looked at that, so I can't question that. But I'd be interested to look at that. Yes. Um, so let's look at what the uh, mainstream media narrative is in the United States is from the Hill. And their story at a glance here is excess deaths associated with, uh, oh, sorry, excess deaths are deaths associated with COVID-19 directly or indirectly. No, they're not. Excess deaths are deaths associated with any cause, uh, which are above and beyond the whatever measure you choose, which in most cases is a five-year average. Uh, if even if COVID-19, they say, is not listed as the cause of death on the death certificate, it doesn't necessarily mean the virus didn't play a role. And one insurance company executive estimated that the death rates are currently up 40% over what they were uh, pre-pandemic. So we have an attempt here to justify the excess mortality, which the insurance companies are saying is 40 to 50% higher than it was pre-pandemic. We're now supposedly out of the pandemic, but we're seeing this excess mortality what is the cause? The narrative that's being built is that it's continuing COVID-19. And there's a bit of uh, irony in that, bearing in mind the level of uh, vaccination that uh, the governments around the world are claiming that we have and so on. So 
But nonetheless, the concern for them, the primary concern seems to be to make sure that people aren't looking at vaccines as a potential cause for this. Yeah, and I think what the Hill have outlined there in their little little uh, uh, story at a glance box is um, is how this is being perceived. So, it, so if if we look at it from the insurance company executive um, Scott, who was who we saw talking earlier, his if his workforce have accepted this, then they are seeing every you know even if they're aware, which of course they would be if they work in the insurance industry, they probably are aware of the excess mortality. This is how they will interpret it. So they will see it as all COVID related. Yes. Which which is why that which is where their fear comes from. Right. So let's uh, put this graph uh, on screen now again. All cause mortality and your point here. Well, tell us what your point is. Yeah. So if we see what the the, the pattern of all cause mortality, um, obviously, if you look at that, the first thing that strikes you is that if you if you put in the vaccine rollout and when the statistical changes occurred is that there's very difference between the peaks of mortality for the post, pre and post the statistical change. So we have to ask if that post um, excess mortality uh, figure is higher. Um, but also there's clearly no discernible impact from a vaccine. If, you know, that isn't there. So, you know, that's, that's the thing that stands out to me. Yes. Uh, and uh, then this one. Yeah, so this is this is how this is rolling. This is how this is working. So if we look, this is kind of basically zooming in on that on that previous um, graph. So the the red crosses are are peaks, recorded peaks in mortality, and then they calculate an average from that, and that's what the blue shaded area is. But they are calling all of that. Uh, that's predicted all cause mortality with COVID. But what they're saying is that that is COVID-related mortality. So that mortality could include a variety of causes. But they are assuming, and as, as is just highlighted by the Hill, now in, in, this has been seeded into the, seeded into the uh, explanation, is that even if there's no evidence that COVID has got anything to do with it, you know, now it's kind of being assumed that that's all to do with unmet or unrealized COVID, the impact of COVID. So they are hiding within this data the true causes of, um, you know, it's, it's, that needs to be researched further. We need to find out what the true causes are of mortality within that. So the, yes. and also the, the interesting part is the predicted all-cause mortality without COVID. So what they are doing is that they are differentiating between all-cause mortality on that basis. So if it's if it's excess all-cause mortality, it's with COVID. If it's not excess all-cause mortality, then it's without COVID. Right. And uh, well, let's look at insurance statistics then. And this is going back to 2016. And McKinsey saying uh, the U.S. life insurance industry's average annual growth over the past 10 years has been less than 2% in nominal terms and negative in real terms. This downward trend is nothing new. In the last 30 years, the number of life policies sold annually has fallen by almost half from 17 million to fewer than 10 million. Meanwhile, the average face value has steadily increased from $110,000 to over $170,000. Yes, 
Yeah, I mean, what McKinsey were talking about in 2016 is is a is a, an insurance market that was in decline in terms of the numbers. So it was steadily decreasing. That increase in 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 uh, value, you know, that increase in price, effectively. Um, you know, we also have to take into account, um, uh, you know, inflation and things like that as well. But nonetheless, with fewer customers, the insurance companies were increasing the the cost of those policies. Uh, and so if we put this one on, it's showing uh, that in 2020, uh, sorry, in 2011, uh, what was, what's that, 63% of US yeah. adults uh, owned life insurance by 2021, that was down to 52%. But in the meantime, life insurance payouts are seeing the highest increase in over 100 years. Yeah, so you've got a smaller number of people who are being paid out at, a, at, an at a higher rate. So there are more claims from a smaller group. So that suggests, I think, that there's a significant problem with with mortality, which is which is you know supported by what the uh, insurance companies are saying. I think the, the the key thing here, and this is where where the problem comes. This is where the issue comes with what the what the CDC have been claiming about all cause mortality, is that. If we look at this, many of the victims of COVID-19 have been older people who generally have smaller policies. So that the numbers, the, you know, a relative increase in the number of people with smaller policies because they're older, there's a smaller payout, wouldn't account necessarily for a massive increase in overall payouts. So, so where is this big increase coming from? So some 81% of those deaths were people aged over 65 and older. But if we listen to what um, uh, the, the guy from the insurance company was saying, he's not talking about increased mortality in people aged eight, uh, 65 and over. He's talking about increased mortality in people under 65. So then we see this, another highlighted part, COVID deaths in 2021, meanwhile, have topped 2020. So regardless of the vaccines, the COVID deaths are going up. As of last month, which could put insurance industry on track for another record year of payouts. Now, given what given what the gentleman was saying from the insurance company, from America uh, Insurance Company, um, that is likely because what they are seeing is a spike in mortality, not in the older population. These increased payouts are coming uh, from a smaller group of, of insured people that are under 65, and obviously, because their, their their policy payout is exponentially higher, that is pushing. That is what is pushing up quite clearly the payouts from the insurance companies in the US because it's young people dying and not older people. Yes. Well, look. Let's uh, come show the uh, latest ONS statistics from the UK for all cause mortality. So this is the number of deaths registered by week, England and Wales, twentieth of December, twenty nineteen, to the twentieth of May, twenty twenty two. And this is for any cause, although they do uh, attempt to suggest that the blue bars, the blue sections there are people that have passed away as, as uh, related to COVID-19 in some way. And if we look at the far right hand side of that, we're seeing that in the last number of weeks in April and May, uh, we're seeing what about, uh, what's that, about 12 or 13,000 people a week dying in April and May. Well, we didn't see that number dying in, in April or May well, we did in, in 2020 because that's when the so-called pandemic uh, really started to kick off. But in 2021, we didn't see anything like that uh, in May, 
it's somewhere around the 9,000 per week mark uh, or 10,000 per week. So we're seeing significant excess mortality in April and May in the UK. Um, and uh, uh, so, but we have no particular explanation for that. Now, uh, vaccines may be one explanation for it, uh, but Patrick's just about to come on to uh, to healthcare rationing and so on. And obviously the, the fact that ambulances are queued up outside uh, hospitals could be a contributing factor. It could be the fact that people haven't been getting diagnosed with cancer and so on. Uh, and uh, uh, that that could be a big part of it as well. The, tr the fact is we don't know the answer to that, but the government doesn't seem to be concerned to find out. So have you got any thoughts on what we've just shown there? Uh, no, no, not at all. But um, I think uh, we, you know, the issue of healthcare rationing, is there, there's a number of different things that are feeding into that. One of them is a shortage of staff. Uh, one of them is uh, the fact that they're totally overridden with uh, COVID bureaucracy uh, and regulations and things like that. What's causing staff shortages? People out because they've tested positive for COVID people on furlough, people uh, staying at home for whatever reason, people who've left the job uh, because they just can't take it anymore, people who didn't want to get vaccinated. A certain percentage of NHS workers uh, yes. didn't want to get vaccinated. That's going to have a major effect. Uh, agencies can't just automatically fill all of those vacancies. So again, this goes back to what we said before. These are uh, policies that have been put in place that have had a disastrous effect on uh, on the institution yes yes okay so so let's move on to millbrook medical center then well this is just another example of course we're getting a lot of these tips uh from our our viewers on this this is up in kirkby uh in liverpool if you're from that part of the world you'll be familiar with this this was a letter that a gp uh, sent out to its patients here this is via the new kirkby reporter it's a facebook group there uh and so basically they're saying that um uh, we're, we're really sorry. Uh, there's delays. Uh, we've got a lot of problems. We're sort of overrun, uh, but uh, hold on, you know, stay, bear with us. But we're, we're having trouble. We're having trouble. It's, it's a very uh, jumbled up kind of message they're sending, a bit desperate from this particular GP. Um, but uh, I, I thought it was interesting to point uh, to this particular part here. You know, they're going on talking about uh, what, what the normal ratio is for, for pa patients and GPs. Uh, back in, I think, 2015, it was uh, 0 0.52 uh, uh, patients uh, per, or GPs per 1,000 patients. A bit lower now, uh, 0.45 uh, um, GPs per 1,000 patients. So th that ratio is not looking good um, and might have something to do with the things that we just mentioned um, uh, previously. Um, but then th it gets even more interesting. So you look at this uh, bit here. And so you've got also the guidelines that have been set by the European Union of general uh, practitioners and the British Medical Association, okay? So they're definitely, they're citing the, the, the EU on this, the EU group there. And so they're saying, hey, look, we're within uh, our, what we're, our commitments are, 25 interactions or 25 with GPs and clinicians uh, per GP per day plus clinicians. It's hard to find out exactly what their actual story is on this. But I thought this part was especially interesting here. Unfortunately, the increase in abuse, accusations, and general negative attitudes towards staff who, are, uh, re who remain working extremely hard uh, in general practice is demoralizing and not, good, not a good advertisement 
uh, for more to join the profession. So they're sort of hitting back at patients um, and kind of blaming them uh, for the, for their own bad service, for the staff shortage, and for the bad service. So they're basically saying, "Suck it up, you know, we're doing our best here." But really, what what what, what should be happening is is the patients should say to the NHS, suck it up. Mm. You know, it's not our job to figure out how to organize healthcare. Mm. It's your job and you've got billions and billions of dollars and umpteen committees and uh, consultancies and all sorts of people who have, have, should have figured this out by now uh, in the last 70 or 80 years. So what's the problem? And they'll, they're throwing their hands up and saying, oh, it's COVID mm. or it's whatever. And, but they said, but we have given thousands and thousands of vaccines. So they have succeeded GPs have succeeded in one area, which is vaccines, and they're very proud of it, and they tout that all the time, and you get your SMS messages every, every day inviting you for the next vaccine. They're very efficient and very good at delivering vaccines. Are, what, what exactly are the vaccines doing? Well, Ian's just demonstrated they're doing very little, if anything. Yeah, so that's their big achievement. Other than that's, damaging people's health, potentially. So the NHS has one victory, which is vaccines, but what are they actually doing? Hmm. So is this, a, is this a success or is this a failure? We all got locked down and had to stay at home to save the NHS. You remember that? And what happened? What is the National Health Services become something else? Yes. And, and it hasn't recovered yet. And they're saying, oh, we're still in the pandemic. They're still requiring people to wear masks. And they're even getting into, one, one person called me very distraught and we spoke recently and he said he was intimidated by uh, the, the nurses who demanded that he wear a mask and it turned into a fight. He doesn't want to go back to his GP anymore Yes, as a result of that. But that's happening every day. Ian. I think, I think Patrick's just said something very important there. We were locked down to save the NHS. Well, uh, obviously, what happened was we were locked down to destroy the NHS because that's been the product. The product, the product has been to, to hobble the NHS, not to save it. The National Health Service or the National Liverpool Pathway Service? Yes. That's the question. Yes. So, so let's put this up. This is a... a, a comment on Mumsnet um, talking about staff shortages and thank you to the person, the UK call member that posted this in the forums and, and saying you know, they're, they're saying that staff shortages um, are now a national crisis and they're asking, well, OK, we don't, they're saying we don't expect much from Boris Johnson's Tory government, but why isn't the Labour Party really campaigning on this? Why aren't they pushing back on this? And they're just making the point that they can't get health care they can't go to restaurants. They can't go to. There's so many aspects of life at the moment that because of these staff shortage shortages, we're not able to to access the normal facilities that we have done in the past. And everybody seems to be extremely quiet about it, as if it's become the new normal. And and they're saying, no, this is a national crisis, and it absolutely is a national crisis. But uh, no polit nobody is prepared to pick up that political football and run with it. So why? Is that because it's policy again? You can't just conjure staff out of thin air. You know, it's, it's a very delicate operation, even in the best of times. Not only that, what, what about adverse reactions of uh, staff members? What about people suffering? They're, they, they're more fatigued. Maybe they have some side effects. That could be in the sort of tens of thousands. Who knows? So there, all of these factors, if you sort of put them in, uh, factor them in. It's, uh, it's, it's potential chaos. Yes. And, it, and again, you trace it back to a specific policy decisions by government, okay, that had nothing to do with what was going on in nature. 
Um, they, it wasn't because of an act of God. It was government that did it. Right. Okay, well, let's uh, move uh, on to Ukraine then, Patrick. And as we said at the beginning of the program, uh, it is 100 days uh, since the beginning of the conflict. Yes, everybody's taking a big, deep breath and taking stock of what's been happening uh, in Ukraine. 100 days, the big benchmark. It was supposed to be over by now. Well, the, the narrative in the West is Putin thought it would be over by 100 days. And the narrative that the West has been pushing for the last three months is that Putin was, has been losing uh, for the first 100 days. Well, let's just find out where things are at uh, right now. Well, let's go to the paper of record and see what the New York Times has to say. Well, this is a big, big mea culpa here. Uh, they're admitting now Zelensky himself has come forward and admitted that Russia controls 20% of Ukraine or what used to be Ukraine. That's a bit of a tricky uh, label there because some of it, like Crimea, for instance, they're including that, I think, in this uh, one-fifth of the country is under Russian control. So he's very worried about this. And he's saying, basically, I need more weapons, need more weapons. Mm -hmm. So it's the usual uh, Zelensky song there. So, But that's a big admission. So, I mean, uh, there's a big pivot going on right now with the Western mainstream media. They're starting to say, well, Russia's actually doing very well and Ukraine's doing very badly. We need to up the weapons before it was Russia's losing. We'll show you recent coverage on that. Let's take a look at the battle map here. And this is Ukraine, effectively, or what's left of Ukraine, and it's shrinking by the week. Uh, you can see the Donbass region, Donetsk, Lugansk, uh, and down there with Mariupol in the south towards Crimea. That's the orange area. Uh, so that's the area that's coming under, it's, you could say, effectively permanently under Russian uh, control. Kherson, just above Crimea, there's Russian rubles are in circulation. That's the de facto currency. Uh, they've got a Russian-speaking uh, administration. Um, they have Russian telecom. Uh, they have all, all these things have been implemented. Uh, there's going to be a referendum about whether to join the Russian Federation uh, fairly soon. This is the head of the Kherson uh, regional government has said this. Russian passports are available um, as well for these people if they wish. So that's those areas, I, I, I'm sorry, but they're not going back. But here's the thing. Uh, that, that's the Ukrainian industrial heartland right there. And that is uh, 90% or 80 or 90% under Russian control. I mean, this is where the resources are. Um, this is where the manufacturing base is. And this is also where uh, an important part of the agricultural um, sector is based uh, as well. Mm. Um, and not only that, you have the offshore oil uh, in the Azov Sea. Um, you have other resources, gas and things like that. It's all in the east. So this has been a devastating loss for Ukraine, for, for Kiev. So NATO has really failed um, on so many different levels. I mean, if, if this is a victory for NATO and Kiev, I mean, uh, I'd hate to see what a loss looks like. But this is getting worse by the day. That orange area, as we've said many times on this program, is just increasing. Mm. And it's going to increase. And who knows? Look, the, as we said, when this war broke out, within four or five days, Russia had operational control over a massive amount, almost half of the country, um, at least in terms of the transport and the roads and, and things like that. And then they, they encircled Kiev partly, and then they uh, moved out at certain point. But what they demonstrated there is they can move at, at a very quick speed and take control over large portions of this country. Mm. This was, would be the largest country in Europe, or one of the largest by land. And uh, Russia has done an amazing uh, feat of uh, military 
uh, progress and how they managed to control these areas. And, uh, you know, I appreciate that many people are accusing uh, the UK column of taking a pro-Russian stance. That's not what we're doing, of course. We're, we're reporting what's going on, but more than, uh, you know, it, the perception of a pro-Russian stance is because of our criticism of what the, the West is doing in this conflict. But, but the, my point here, Patrick, is um, that, uh, the, the, well, anyway, you're going to... Well, look, if Man United is up uh, four to two at halftime um, and you're announcing that, it, it doesn't mean you're pro-Man United. It right. just means they're up four to two. Sorry, uh, we can't sort of uh, gloss this over and hide it like the mainstream media have been doing for the last three months. Right, indeed. But let's uh, come on to what uh, Defence Intelligence, their latest uh, re report here from this morning. And the BBC's headline uh, as a result of this was begrudgingly saying that uh, Russia is in control of what they're doing. But but here's the caveat, according to Defence Intelligence. Uh, today marks the 100th day since Russia's invasion of Ukraine. Russian forces failed to achieve their initial objectives to seize Kiev and Ukrainian centres of government. Uh, Russia is now achieving a tactical success in Donbass. Russian forces have generated and maintained momentum and currently appear to hold the initiative over Ukrainian opposition. Uh, measured against Russia's original plan, none of the strategic objectives have been achieved. Well, aside from the grammatical nonsense there, uh, the, what evidence has defense intelligence got of, of, of their uh, knowledge of Russia's original plan? Well, that's a straw man argument because it assumes that, uh, well, it assumes that defense intelligence know the original plan, assumes that Russia didn't uh, fulfill its original plan. It looks like if Russia's original plan was to secure the Donbass and to protect Crimea, open the Crimean Canal, and to tie up Ukrainian forces in Kiev, which they effectively did by half encircling it during that time, then it's a, it's a resounding success. Did Russia want to decapitate the government in Kiev and overthrow Zelensky? That's what the mainstream media was repeating yes. for a couple of months. And is that really the case? Um, strategically, you could also argue that uh, Moscow pulled an absolute blinder and tied up uh, half of Ukraine's forces and cut off supply lines to the east, which is leading to the result which we're seeing right now. And they've done that. Uh, in 100 days. And if we compare the damage to infrastructure and the n number of civilian deaths and the number of combatant deaths, compare that with, for example, the first 100 days of the Iraq war. Well, this is chalk and cheese. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So, I mean, again, it, in, it, they're, they're trying to say this is their Vietnam, this is Russia's Vietnam, that this is the new Afghanistan. Look, when you can move over the border and back again and move your forces around into Belarus, into Russia and then pop in and pop out, that's a huge advantage. Yeah. And to say that they have supply line problems, I mean, if you listen to US media, they're banging every day on about, oh, Russia's losing, this is the, they're running out of bullets, the morale is low, they're running over their own generals with tanks because their soldiers are so frustrated. I mean, yeah. the fake news is just legion uh, right now. Ian. I think you can contrast two statements that came prior to the, um, uh, the, the military operation on the 24th of February. When Biden was speaking, um, I can't remember, I think it was the end of January, he gave a response to, you know, when the NATO were talking about everything ramping up. He said that quite clearly that if Russia took military action, and I can't remember the exact quote, but that Russia would prevail. He, he, he admitted that Russia would prevail. So there was no doubt from the US side that, that Russia would win if it chose to. So all this talk about Ukraine winning subsequent to that, 
was totally uh, antithetical to what to what the, the president had said. Contrast that with what um, uh, Putin said in his official announcements, and, and Russia openly declared that they had no intention at all of occupying Ukraine. They, they said, we're not, we haven't got any intention of occupying Ukraine. Their sole objective as was clear that they wanted to denazify and demilitarize the Ukraine in defense of the Donbass region and ultimately, you know, as well as Crimea, which they'd already secured. So the, the whole narrative, the idea that is, free, that, is, that is persistently pushed by the Western media that Russia ever had any intention of occupying and seizing the whole of Ukraine and therefore have failed is just ridiculous. It's ridiculous. I mean, look, the things change over time, right? So they, Russia could end up occupying or annexing or absorbing half of Ukraine up to the Dnieper River in six months, a year or two years time because things are going to change. If they keep this war going, then in order to, to protect the people in the areas where Russia Russian forces are, they're going to go, have to go further uh, past the line of contact. Yes. And if that means going all the way to Kiev or, or Lvov or whatever, then that's, that's going to happen. That's just what happens in war and conflict. If there's a peace settlement and a negotiation and people then can draw lines at that point, then that's what will happen. Mm -hmm. But I don't see that happening. So I see, again, that orange area we showed you on the map, I think it's just going to get bigger in the next year. And there's nothing you can do about it. So I'm I'm sorry to say to anybody who's more uh, wants to have more of a positive spin on it, but it's is not looking good right now. Okay, so which brings us to the Washington Post and more rhetoric. Russia is losing. Uh, just to point out, this was one week ago. Here, Russia is losing. That might make Putin more dangerous. He's a he'll be a cornered dog, and uh, he'll unleash nuclear weapons out of frustration. I mean, this was the post last week. The tide of war is clearly shifting against the aggressor, Russia. So <laughs> that, that was just a week ago, and now they flipped. Yeah. So just, just to show you. And then this, the, the mouthpiece here for the Council on Foreign Relations, Foreign Affairs a magazine here, Putin's hard choices, why the Russian despot can neither mobilize nor retreat. He's trapped. Putin doesn't know what to do. He's trapped, according to the Council on Foreign Relations, best minds here at Foreign Affairs. And this is what they've got here. If you just scroll a little further, now they're saying at the same publication, they're saying Ukraine's best chance for peace. Actually, if Ukraine, if Ukraine would just commit to neutrality, not being a NATO member state, uh, this would bring security and it would keep Russia and the West happy. Well, here we are, 100 days later. Yeah. Would have been nice to see these sort of op-eds and articles three months ago, four right. months ago, a year ago. But uh, there again, so they're, be, they're late to the party. They're scrambling to catch up. They've been riding this narrative forever. Um, and this is what's happening. So, but, you know, meanwhile, meanwhile, the paper of record, this is the sort of Pulitzer Prize winning journalism that the New York Times is putting out here. This was so gripping. And I was just so drawn to this story here. Uh, this is uh, from uh, Diego Sanchez. He's He's on the ground in Lviv, okay? Oh, okay. And uh, he writes, Nestor, a tattoo artist from Lviv, said that patriotic tattoos have been popular with his customers during the war. People are trying to capture their emotions and experience, he said. Ukrainian soldiers would get tattoos to show their bravery, he said, and foreign volunteers would use them to commemorate their experience supporting Ukraine. 
It's just wonderful journalism. This is all you're getting now mm. uh, in the Western media, this style of kind of documentary-style journalism. There's nothing going on in Lviv, so this is what you get. Stories about tattoos. I mean, it is really unbelievable. That's literally leading the New York Times' updates on Ukraine this morning, mm. was the tattoo story. So and just to, to take a look here, this is what he's talking about. These sort of beauties here, get the trident there on the forearm. There's other tattoos. We didn't want to show them to upset people, but they were basically swastikas. But that's another tattoo artist, probably in somewhere else, maybe in Kiev, um, I guess. So, so now some of the British soldiers are, are, are coming back, continue, now speaking to the mainstream media. One has spoken to Channel 4, and it's not, it's not a good report uh, as far as the mercenary scene uh, in there, uh, Truss's army uh, that moved in early. But let, let's look at this clip from this um, British mercenary who's actually an active service duty veteran, Okay, uh, I, I believe. Um, but listen to, listen to what he has to say. Most of the ex-serving, whether it's the Navy, Army, Marines, even the Air Force, some guys were there, you know, they, they were, you know, within a decent age, 30 and above, but there was a lot of young guys who have never been in any um, serving military, had no, any military training at all, you know, kind of Call of Duty type people. I would say 20 plus British have died. It's a very different kind of war to anything everybody out there has experienced, even some guys who have been to Afghanistan, Iraq, Numerous times, it's a completely different kettle of fish. So surprise, surprise, they weren't picking off uh, goat herders uh, in Afghanistan uh, or, you know, hajis, quote unquote, in Iraq. Uh, they were actually facing an actual armed forces. They were taking, uh, shelling someone who had uh, an air force. This is a total anathema to normal Western conflicts uh, over the last, what? Half a century now. Yes. So they actually <laughs> felt what it was like to be on the other side of shock and awe, and uh, there are probably a lot of them are a little bit surprised. It wasn't the type of action they're used to seeing uh, in their active duty. Uh, indeed. So, so let's look at the weapons situation then. And here we have uh, the U.S. Department of Defense, seven hundred million dollars in additional security assistance for Ukraine, uh, and uh, well, they are quoting uh, Colin Cowley, Under Secretary of, for De of Defense for Policy. Today, President Biden directed the drawdown of additional $700 million in weapons and equipment from the De Department of Defense inventories. Uh, the capabilities in this package include high mobility artillery rocket systems or HIMARS uh, and guided munitions with a range of up to 70 kilometers, five counter artillery radars, two air surveillance radars, uh, 1,000 additional javelins, uh, 50 command launch units, 6,000 anti-armor weapons, 15,155 millimeter artillery rounds, four MI-17 helicopters, uh, 15 tactical vehicles and spare parts and equipment. So that's the uh, the bucket list or the, the list that's going over in the latest that's round. Heading to the scrapyard very soon, probably. Yeah, well, indeed. Uh, but then uh, he went on to say this, uh, uh, that uh, they're doing this to, uh, they're making sure that they can, everything can be rapidly delivered to Ukraine uh, by, pre-positioning them in Europe. So they had all this stuff already in on the European continent, ready for this $700 million announcement so they could get this stuff uh, to the Ukrainians as quickly as possible. Uh, but at the same time that they were announcing the $700 million, uh, they they also announced this was part of, they were detailing the, the full scale of the package. But anyway, uh, the Russians, of course, 
criticizing this heavily, as you would expect. Uh, and this is Tass here. Ukrainian forces plan provocation with fire, firing US-made long-range rockets at Russia. So Russia expressed very quickly deep concern about the fact that some of these uh, uh, longer range weapons, although they're, they're still pretty short range, 70 kilometers isn't. But but they're designed for 300. Right. So it depends on what they load onto them. Right. And, they've been, and Russia said, look, if, 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 if they're, if they're going to use these to hit inside Russia, we're going to take that as a direct U.S. involvement militarily and will respond accordingly. Uh, and so here's Newsweek, uh, worried about Russian response. Russia holds nuclear drills as Biden sends uh, rockets to Ukraine. So once again, they're just trying to push this this Russia nu nuclear threat narrative. It's just it's escalation. So we're going to send bigger weapons. We're, we're losing more. We're losing more badly. Let's send bigger weapons. Russia responds. Things escalate. Is this a direction that we should be taking things? Right. And whatever the U.S. won't send, and Biden did back down, and they, they equipped them with slightly shorter range uh, armaments on that. Don't worry. Don't worry. The British will fill the gap. Let's just look at this. Uh, the U.K. seeks to arm Ukraine with weapons the U.S. won't send. So London's intention was confirmed by British Defense Secretary Ben Wallace on Wednesday. He said that launchers will be able to strike targets of up to 80 kilometers and offer a significant boost in capability uh, for Ukrainian forces, according to a statement released by the British Foreign Office. This is on RT. Uh, you don't get to read all these types of reports in the Western media, uh, and you won't see it on RT if you're in Britain because it's been banned uh, in Britain. So whatever the U.S. won't send, um, British will take it uh, from the U.S. stock and send it themselves. Yes. Um, so does that put Britain in the firing line? Uh, does that mean Britain has taken it upon itself to escalate towards a world war? Have we voted on this? Has there been any discussion uh, in the uh, House of Commons on this? I think Britain or, has been front and center of that escalation from the beginning. Are we just sleepwalking to a war? Uh, where is the democracy uh, involved here? The, I, I, there is none. Ian? Um, I don't know about these things because I'm not a, an expert on such matters, but what's to stop the Ukrainians reconfiguring and yeah, re, they can change the fuel mapping, can't they, on these on these missiles to give them longer range? What 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 would stop them doing that? Well, there's 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 a lot of possibilities that things can go wrong uh, and this 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 little thing can shift in the wrong direction. There's a hundred quickly. There's a hundred different ways that, that could happen. Um, so we, we just think it's, it's really asking for trouble because Ukraine has attacked already um, with their sort of Tonsha or Tonshka uh, Scud missiles. Right. They've already hit into Russian territory already. Russia's made a big deal about that. They've also hit targets uh, in, in, in Belgorod um, as well. So, I mean, that's already happened. You know, it, well, this this one then we've been highlighting for some, some time as well, Patrick. And finally, the mainstream press seems to have caught up. Uh, Colonel Black was talking about this in my interview with him, but we've been talking about it in other news programs as well. And the headline here is arms sent to Ukraine could end up in criminal hands. Yeah, according to Interpol. Okay. By the way, it, it, all the coverage on this in Western media, they don't show the N-law missiles, right. the anti-tank. All they show is small arms. Okay. That's really not the concern. The concern is the N-laws and the javelins. Those can take out airliners mm. uh, around airports. Uh, Al-Qaeda, ISIS, we're, we're firing at passenger airliners from Damascus airport uh, as they took off I mean yeah. or Aleppo airport that's the that's the concern here so we don't have to go very far to find out that this is actually 
happening. Uh, there's a number of reports. We've just cherry-picked one of these. Let's take a look at it here. This is from a Telegram channel called Russian Occupant, but this has also been circulated widely on a number of Arabic uh, channels here. And this is a, a Syrian terrorist or uh, extremist or re moderate rebel or whatever boasting um, about how they've been to Ukraine to pick up some of these arms and uh, inshallah that they'll bring them back uh, to, to Syria, according to these guys. The announcement appeared about the sale of Javelin ATGM American products, the price per Javelin, $15,000. So got 15 grand, pick up a Javelin in Ukraine. Uh, and here it goes on, the Syrian militant calls a friend uh, and says that he successfully went to Ukraine to buy Western weapons from, a Ukraine, from the Ukrainian military. Um, he showed a batch of what darts, quote darts, I'm not sure what, what that means. But uh, then he says that uh, they were returning from Ukraine by bus, hiding behind Turkish uh, refugees. Uh, he promised, means Syrian Turkish refugees, I guess. He promised to buy everything you need from the Ukrainian military next time he goes back. So there's a little bit of a rat line going on there that could be connecting Ukraine um, to Syria. Plenty of weapons on offer. And if you're an underpaid, if you're a Ukrainian officer and you're on, uh, you know, $200 a month, um, 15 grand. That's tempting. And you've got a thousand of those in the warehouse. Yeah. I mean, this is what's going to happen. Mm. So it's, it's not a question of if, it's just a question of how much at this point. And they're dying to restart the Syrian conflict. Um, so then uh, failure of leadership. Well, this poll came out. This is from the Democracy Institute. Uh, it was uh, featured in the Express in the UK. Uh, and so this, this is a Basham poll from the uh, Democracy Institute. Failure of leadership. American public is ready to abandon Ukraine as trust in Biden plunges. Let's take a look at the highlights of this particular poll. It's very interesting. This is what the people are saying. Uh, according to the poll, only a third of Americans support Biden's Ukraine policy, why 53% disapprove. And they go on, half of Americans disapprove of his $40 billion aid budget to Ukraine, and just 45% support it. So that's uh, pretty much right down the middle, right. leaning towards opposing it. That's not very good news in terms of America. What does that tell you? That probably a lot of people, certainly a lot of Trump Republicans, I would imagine, don't support this. And sort of genuine lefties, I would imagine, don't support it either, although there's not very many of them left these days. A mere 5% see Ukraine as a top priority in terms of foreign policy, in terms of policy, compared to 26% um, on, on, on a shortage of baby formula food, 21% on inflation, 16% on the economy um, and jobs. So it's not a big priority. Americans got other problems that they're grappling with that certainly they don't want to throw much more money, more bad money at, at a bad problem here. But this one is really interesting. I liked this part of the poll here. Let's take a look at this. Better scenario for America. Um, so which is better? Putin loses power in Russia or Biden loses power <laughs> in the U.S.? 56% say it's, it's a better scenario for America if Biden loses power than if Putin loses power in Russia. Uh -huh. That's brilliant, isn't it? And of course, Vlad's having a little chuckle at that one, I'm sure. So that's where we're at. So one of the big problems, of course, is inflation in America. Mm. And this is something that nobody wants to fess up, uh, especially the White House. 
because they've been telling everybody for months that it's not a problem, it's transitory. It's, it's going to peak and it's going to fall away just as quickly as it rose. We it, don't have to worry about it. Yeah, yeah, don't worry. It's, it'll come and go. Don't, it, things will go back to normal. So here's the new White House press secretary. This is Corinne uh, Jean-Pierre, uh, who replaced Peppermint Patty, who's left to MSNBC. But here's her trying to basically explain the inflation thing, and she's been totally caught out. She's being caught out daily. It's a tough job defending Joe Biden mm. and this administration. Admittedly, it's a very hard job. She's not doing a great job of it, but it's not really a job that you can win at. Let's, let's watch this amazing exchange. Another big topic. When are you guys going to admit that you were wrong about inflation? <laughs> no easy questions today, huh? Uh, the Treasury Secretary says that she was wrong, so why doesn't anybody okay. here at the White House? Okay, so look, what uh, what the Secretary was pointing out, uh, out uh, including... In, well, let me... I'm, I'm trying to answer your question. I'm, I'm, hold on. I, I was just getting to the why not, uh, including Russia's decision to inc invade Ukraine, multiple successive variants of COVID and lockdowns in China. We have achieved an historic recovery through an extraordinarily unprecedented economic moment. The president has consistently noted that the primary drivers of inflation are the pandemic and Putin's invasion of Ukraine. The twists and turns of both these monumental events have affected energy prices and also food prices that we have seen these past several months. This is Putin's price hike, which the president refers to, and that is what Secretary Yellen was referring to. So uh, the first thing I noticed about that, Patrick, is of course those aren't her words, or it's all pre-prepared. There's it's a script she's reading. She's not capable of actually articulating a position out of her own mind. Every day she has got a stack of a script and she literally reads it off oh. verbatim, word for word, every single, practically every single exchange, certainly on the difficult stuff. So she's reading off this cue card, people are briefing her. Um, so this has happened because Janet Yellen, the uh, Treasury Secretary, has come out and has basically admitted that there's an inflation problem yeah. and they're struggling to get it under control. And at the same time, the Biden administration saying there's not an inflation problem um, or have been. So yeah. th this is what's prompted this kind of push by the media saying, you know, what's the story here? Right. What's the real story? Okay. Media lies them. Yeah. So I, I, I pen this uh, very short piece here, um, more of a rant, really, at 21st Century Wire. Media lies are fueling a phony Ukraine narrative. And I just pointed out, and I, we got a very good response from this, and it was also republished uh, at the Ron Paul uh, Institute as well. The longer the geniuses at NATO... Uh, in our media continue fueling their proxy war of attrition, it is a war of attrition, the more territory Kiev is going to lose, and whatever they lose, they will never get back. And I'm sorry to say that, but that's just going to happen. And that's for the simple reason that the people in those regions do not want to live in a wildly corrupt, Western-controlled, Nazi-ridden, sectarian basket case of a failed state. And uh, finally on this, so the next time you hear someone trumpeting, I stand with Ukraine, just stop and ask them two things. Uh, where do you draw the, that line on how many dead Ukrainian soldiers until we call it quits? And how much territory will Kiev have to lose before we say that's enough? That's what I uh, recommend to people is ask those two questions and see what the answers are. And yes. don't let them go. So just say, demand an answer on that. For anybody who's shouting Slava Ukraini uh, in the West, how much, how much 
does Ukraine have to lose in terms of its young men, in terms of its territory, before we're satisfied in the West? Okay, uh, Ian. Yeah, I mean, just think about what we've just seen in the last a couple of minutes. So you've seen the White House spokeswoman talking about how the inflation, according to her, has got nothing to do with pumping funny money into the market. It's got nothing to do with that. It's it's all about what's happening with the pandemic and what's happening in Ukraine. We've then got admissions starting to come out that pumping weapons into Ukraine is maintaining the, the war. We've got acknowledgement that Russia have, uh, are currently kind of more or less strategically settled on what their objectives were and are holding their position. So if, presumably, if you stop arming Ukrainians, you can start having negotiations and dialogue. So we've got this total schizophrenic kind of, kind of disconnect in, in, in terms of Western policy. On the one hand, they're blaming the war, currently the war, uh, for, for, the, for the economic problems. On the other hand, they're doing everything they possibly can to perpetuate it. So how is that? How does that make any sense at all? Well, it only makes sense if they uh, want to see the outcomes. And uh, one of the outcomes, they're not stupid. They know very well that one of the outcomes is going to be uh, increased inflation, energy shortages and so on, which brings us very sorry. Oh, I just wanted to say, you know, what you said, Ian, is, is interesting, and also what you said earlier when we're talking about excess mortality, blaming excess mortality on COVID, um, exactly the same type of gaslighting, uh, blaming inflation uh, on either Putin or the pandemic. Yeah. It's the same type, it's the same strategy. There, everybody in the West is caught up uh, in this dishonesty, this sort of habitual lying, and this kind of mass gaslighting uh, exercise that they're involved in. And, and it's, it's so bad right now that you can't even say the truth in Washington or London or working at any of these mainstream media outlets. For, it, you can't say the truth too early for fear of being ostracized, uh, having your career uh, damaged as an academic. Look at what happened to Tim Hayward right. in the last week. As an academic, uh, if you even dare to speak the truth. We're at that point now in civilization. We're, midi we're in a medieval sort of zone where only the court jester is allowed to speak, speak to speak the truth everybody else absolutely forbidden yeah okay well let's uh, come on to the energy situation and this is uh, gasterra uh, their website gasterra is uh, part owned by the uh, dutch government the uh, government of the netherlands uh, and it is a gas company in the netherlands of course and they have announced that they are not going to go along with uh, gasprom's payment demands this is of course uh, gasprom requiring payment for gas uh, in rubles uh, and so Gazprom is shutting off uh, the supply to uh, the Netherlands. Uh, I think it was Denmark as well as another one, Ger Germany, Germany as well. Yeah. Okay, so the question is, what are the implications uh, for, for Britain, for example? Well, uh, this is a headline in Energy Live from a couple of days ago. Nearly 6 million UK homes could be hit by power cuts due to energy shortage. Uh, and this is what they're claiming is going to happen in the winter. Uh, they're saying that uh, high uh, intensity high energy use industries are going to be uh, effectively uh, coming under requirements to limit their use uh, and uh, and home use as well. Uh, there's going to be uh, restrictions there. Now this is this reminds me of Damascus. Uh, Vanessa Bailey uh, has four hours energy a day. Beirut, uh, same. Right, same thing. So we're going third uh, and world. We're, he we're heading the same direction as a result. But I just wanted to make this point, uh, and this is Gridwatch, which shows what's going on with uh, power generation, electricity generation capacity in the UK. 
Uh, and uh, at the moment, if you look at the graph there, you can see uh, nuclear is providing uh, today 17% of the electricity generating capacity. Natural gas is providing 42%, biomass 8%, uh, wind is providing 16% today, and solar is providing 19% today. But it's the bottom half of that graph that is much more interesting because those are all the interconnects. So we've got IC France, IC2 France, IC Netherlands, uh, IC Ireland, and so on down the list. And what you can see there is that we are currently exporting energy across those interconnects. Now, up until the, uh, the switch basically seemed to happen about November last year. Up until November last year, any time I looked at this graph going back, you know, 10 years, um, the interconnects were taking energy from the European continent into the UK, uh, with the exception of the Irish interconnect, because we always exported energy to the Republic of Ireland. Uh, but starting really about November last year, we started exporting energy um, to the uh, European continent. Uh, small amounts, I mean, I think the total is around 10% or so, uh, if you add all that up together, of what we're generating is going abroad. Um, so my question then is, why would the UK be expecting shortages this year? Uh, Boris Johnson, assuming he's not lying, some people would say he's constantly lying, claims that we have only 3% exposure to Russian gas, and therefore we should have no generating capacity problem for electricity this winter. Uh, and uh, we certainly are generating more at the minute than we need uh, during the summer months. So there, there are many questions to be asked here, um, and uh, we need to keep an eye on this one, I think. Yeah, definitely, definitely. So the, this idea of there's six rounds of sanctions on Russia, uh, the oil ban, they're going to ban oil by sea, still coming in by the pipeline. It's not really a full embargo, but uh, your zero hedge is warning here, Europe's ban on Russian energy will only trigger more inflation pain in the West. This is absolutely true. Uh, we're st we still have the problem of this uh, free-floating uh, wholesale energy market that's uh, out of control in the futures market and everything else. But I thought this was very interesting here. Look at this. OPEC reportedly discusses exempting Russia from oil targets, possibly setting a stage for a boost in output. Now you have to ask yourself the question, why would Russia want to be uh, raising its production uh, uh, cap? vis-a-vis uh, -vis this agreement they have with OPEC plus, right? Why, why is that? Why, if, if we're cutting off Russian oil to the West, they must be suffering. If the sanctions are working, why would Russia, what are they pumping it and then dumping it? I mean, well, it's all going to India and China, right? They found customers, right? So how, how much customers have they found? Let's take a look at this. So again, this is uh, we go to zero hedge, find out what they're saying today. Russia's not only been able to fully offset the 0.7 million uh, barrels a day crude export loss uh, to its traditional customers in the US and Europe, but has managed to sell an additional 1.4 million barrels a day to Asian buyers, says, I believe, JP Morgan, JPM, mm -hmm. right? So this war has been the best thing that's ever happened to Russian oil exporters. And another data point on this, this is interesting, again today here, uh, this is the South China Morning Post. Russia oil giant Rosneft picks a Mandarin speaker to lead its global trading as the Ukraine war prompts a pivot to Asia. So there is a pivot to Asia going on. Russia is pivoting to Asia. That is via Reuters, uh, by the way, uh, in the South uh, China Morning Post. So, th so th w what about these sanctions? Are, are they working? Is uh, price of oil's up, price per barrel's up, Russian revenue's up. 
Russians having to lift its supply cap now, having to negotiate with OPEC to lift the supply cap. So what about these sanctions? Why are we suffering in the West? Uh, I think we need to look towards the World Economic Forum for an answer to that question. Uh, and uh, well, we don't have time to go into that now, but but I think we, we'll oh, do more on that. That's going swimmingly well. It yes. certainly is. Okay. Uh, if you like what the UK Column's doing and you'd like to support us, then please head over to community.ukcolumn.org. Uh, there are options to join us there and you'd be very welcome as a member. Uh, or you can pick something up at the UK Column shop. Uh, but do share any material you see on the various platforms. Now, let's just very briefly uh, talk about uh, uh, Brexit. And this is uh, Tobias Elwood penning an article on uh, Politics Home uh, website. Uh, and he's basically saying, well, let's not worry about Boris too much in this, but uh, let's join the single market again. Let's join the single market because apparently he, well, let's look at what he's had to say. Here he is, 77 Brigade MP, of course. Uh, leaving the single market uh, was not on the ballot paper nor called for by either the Prime Minister or Nigel Farage during the 2016 referendum. Uh, he said there was, however, much discussion about returning to a common market, which is exactly what I propose. Um, so uh, that's very interesting. Let's wind back Brexit to many degrees. Now, of course, uh, the reason I wanted to mention this uh, was this would uh, have implications for the uh, Northern Irish situation at the moment, if the UK were to re-enter the common market as in the single market, then of course the Northern Ireland uh, border issue would disappear. Mm. Uh, but uh, And Irish unification with it, I'm just saying. Yes. Uh, so uh, so anyway, I just wanted to, to let everybody know what uh, Tobias Elwood was calling for there, and uh, maybe you might want to let him know what you think. It's the best of both worlds, isn't best it? Of both worlds, the best indeed. of both worlds. The best of both worlds. And uh, if you have been watching or were watching the UK Column News in 2016 and 17, you would uh, understand what that means. Uh, do have a, a hunt for it. David, uh, Ca David Cameron's snickering right now. Yes, he indeed he is. Just dropped the name of his white paper. Indeed he is. So yesterday, uh, we had Mark Anderson on the program. I'm delighted to say he's joined us again uh, today. Uh, and uh, well, Mark, yesterday you were talking about Bilderberg Conference or the lack of Bilderberg Conference and almost as if they heard you speaking. Uh, the next thing was a couple of hours later, they uh, issued a press release. Yes, indeed. It's rather ironic, a very pivotal turn. Yesterday, I had quoted Tony Gosling, a UK journalist from a Uni uh, American Free Press article where he speculated, and I stress the word speculated, that they maybe had gone underground because they did not meet in 2020 and 2021, allegedly due to COVID restrictions, even though they can afford all the best indoor air sanitation technology, and they all have private jets, so that doesn't really wash. But anyway, at about 4.30 p.m. yesterday, I had written Bilderberg's press people, the anonymous press people, some time ago, and at 4.30 p.m. Central Time yesterday, I got an email from them saying, hey, our first meeting, uh, the first day of the meeting is today, June 2nd, and runs through June 5th. And then uh, Paul Angel, the managing editor of American Free Press, managed to put something online but um, yeah, they, they did a quick twist. It's the shortest notice that I've ever seen on a Bilderberg meeting. I've never seen one in 10 or 11 years that I've been covering this where you get the notice on the first day of the meetings. Usually okay. it's at least three to five days. But anyway, there's some right. very well, interesting well, hold, topics. Hold on, hold on a second. Hold on a second. Hold on a second, Mark. Let, let's, just, let's just go through this for a second and, and then we'll come back to you on this. So if we put the Bilderberg meetings uh, website back on screen, I just wanted to ask you, first of all, for your thoughts on the uh, key topics. 
uh, because the key topics for this year are uh, geopolitical realignments, NATO challenges, China, the Indo-Pacific realignment, Sino-US tech mm. competition, Russia, uh, continuity of government and the economy, we'll mention that in a second, disruption of the global financial system, disinformation, that's a key one, uh, energy mm. security and sustainability, yes. post-pandemic health, fragmentation of democratic societies, uh, trade and deglobalization, and Ukraine. And I just wanted to, to mention this idea of con continuity of, of, uh, of government and the economy, because uh, strangely enough, just a few weeks ago, uh, Rand Corporation uh, had a blog post published, uh, what is continuity of government and why does it matter for Ukraine's national resistance? And I mean, continuity of government is all about the procedures which allow government to continue in the event of some kind of uh, existential threat. Uh, originally invented, in fact, by the British government in the Second World War uh, to deal with uh, Germany. Uh, and of course, uh, only, I think only invoked since the Second World War on 9-11 by the US government. Um, so uh, so anyway, just briefly, what are your thoughts on, uh, on the, the agenda for this meeting? Oh, they're very interesting. They're as interesting as the attendees. And we can talk about that in a minute, including Albert Borla of Pfizer and another uh, big pharma head from Glaxo. But yeah, I mean, just pick one, right? It, they're, they're almost very um, eyebrow raising. Corruption of the global financial system, for example, um, as we see this inflation and we ponder its causes, uh, when they talk about disruption, are they talking about well, they, they want to know how to react when it happens, or are they playing a role in causing that disruption? That's always one of the basic uh, questions regarding Bilderberg. Disinformation. Are they talking about that they really feel there's a disinformation problem, or are they going to talk about how to manage it because they're part of the problem? After all, the head of the CIA is there this year and some other notables. And post-pandemic health, again, Albert Borla is there and the head of Glaxo. Uh, fragmentation of democratic societies, who better than Bilderberg to be involved in that fragmentation uh, along with disinformation? Uh, the Sino-US tech competition, Russia, that all fits in. And the Ukrainian, Ukrainian ambassador to the US is at Bilderberg this year. So that ties into the Ukraine topic as does geopolitical realignments and NATO challenges. The um, uh, the one uh, that uh, tipped off Paul Angel on attending, uh, Sana Marin, Marin, the uh, Finnish prime minister, is going to be there. And I think Finland's status in NATO is sort of in question with Sweden. They're not altogether their official members, I believe. Well, they're, so maybe they're they'll in the process of trying to join, yes. Yeah, so I suspect they're going to solidify the membership with Jens Stoltenberg, who's a perennial there now. So you can see how this is going. The Ukrainian ambassador to the U.S. is there, the prime minister of Finland, very likely to solidify that NATO membership. Uh, geopolitical realignments fit right into that. Uh, what doesn't fit into it, right? Post-pandemic health, again, with the two big pharma people there. Disruption of the global financial system, disruption by whom and for what reason, right? And of course, this one is always there. This one's been there like five weeks, Bilderberg meetings. The, the only topic, uh, the only name of the topic is Russia. That's been there <laughs> several times. I'd say five, six, seven times over the last 10 years. So an Indo-Pacific realignment, 
uh, as NATO expands, I believe that region, Patrick can be if I'm wrong, I believe that region comes into play. And so, uh, as does competition with China. So the, this is all very pivotal and very significant. And again, some of the other members, Christia Freeland, who's the right-hand gal of Justin Trudeau in the Trudeauian tyranny, and Henry Kissinger manages to stay alive to get there. Um, not surprising, but still disturbing on that one. Uh, Jake Sullivan, the director of the U.S. National Security Council, as I uh, noted, William J. Burns, the CIA director. You don't see a lot of CIA directors there. Uh, that's relatively rare, as is right. directors of the National Security Council. Right. Mark, so, Mark, let me just this is a very significant just, meeting. Yeah. Sorry, let, let me just interrupt you there a little bit because it's very interesting that the CIA is represented. This, I, I just want to run through the UK. Uh, participants. So if we can put this uh, back on screen here, uh, this is a participants list on the Bilderberg website. Let's just see who's from the UK. Well, Michael Gove, Secretary of State for leveling up in the Cabinet Office. Uh, we've got uh, Demis Hassabis, the CEO and founder of DeepMind. So there's uh, some AI representation here. Uh, uh, Shashank Joshi, Defence Editor at The Economist. Of course, The Economist always represented it. Uh, David Lamy, who's the Sh Shadow Secretary of State for Foreign Commonwealth and Development Affairs. Uh, then we've got uh, Bernard Looney, who's the CEO of BP, energy representation. Uh, Zani uh, Minton-Beddows, who's chief uh, editor-in-chief of uh, The Economist, uh, so double representation there. Uh, Gideon Rachman, uh, chief foreign affairs commentator at the Financial Times. Uh, John Sawyers, the chief, uh, the executive chairman of Newbury Advisory Limited. Uh, we've got Mark Sedwell, uh, former king, uh, anybody that's been following he was basically in control of everything in the UK government. He's now the chairman of the Atlantic Futures Forum. And, and Soyuz is former MI5 head or MI6 is, or intelligence head? Yes, yeah. he is intelligent. Yes, that's right. Yeah. Yes. And, yeah. uh, we've got Mustafi Suleiman, who's uh, CEO of Infection AI. Uh, we've got Tom Tugendhat, who's the chairman of the Foreign Affairs Committee. Uh, and we've got uh, Emma Walmsley, who's uh, from GlaxoSmithKline, as Mark has already mentioned. Uh, and then finally, we've got Jeremy Fleming, who's director of GCHQ. So we've got AI, intelligence services, uh, government representation, foreign affairs representation. Jabs, uh, vaccines. Uh, and, and vaccines. So uh, that, is a, that is a pretty impressive list. I think that's a, a, the most impressive uh, British list I've seen in quite a number of years, Mark. Yeah, exactly. It is. And it's one of the most impressive, if not the most impressive one for the Americans. And um, again, we cannot make a correlation. The item you're showing now, um, correlation doesn't always mean causation, of course, a rule of journalism. But uh, Albert Borla, the CEO and chairman of Pfizer Incorporated, a pretty unsavory character in his own right, is there right as Pfizer is asking the FDA to clear COVID shots for babies, literally down to five or six months old. And this goes back to trials that were conducted at Stanford University on six-month-olds. I repeat, six-month-olds with the Pfizer BioNTech jab, which is just so unethical that words can scarcely describe it. But um, might there be some leverage for Pfizer to get that FDA approval by going to bill? No one knows. This is not a direct thing here. Connecting the dots prematurely would not be maybe accurate, but it's a very curious timing to say the least.
Uh, yes, and uh, and the the other coverage I saw of that, uh, Mark said that Pfizer has made the application and the FDA has accepted the application, so it's now uh, for consideration. And uh, last last thing I wanted to ask Mark was, Mark, uh, do you think there's any significance in the uh, World Economic Forum in Davos moving its meeting from the normal winter slot? Now it's back to back with Bilderberg, and what do we have the G7 right after this? Uh, G20 is the G, next one. The as G20. Far as yes. So it's one, two, three. Yes. So in terms of the, they've got these three major uh, confabs uh, lined up in a row. Do you do you think there's any significance in that, Mark? Yeah, my gut tells me that it's it's sort of a symphony of globalists here, right? Uh, there, there's more coordination there, and there's reasons for that. They they have a lot of cards on the table, and a lot of things can go wrong in their in their little metaverse that they're trying to micromanage here. So I think they're doing more coordination. Uh, AFP ran a recent article that we've showed on UK column: globalists gather in Davos. Ninety-nine percent of them demand war. That was on the screen on UK column the other day. And then, of course, we also had the 75th World Health Assembly of the WHO that just concluded May 22 through May 28, where they're trying to strengthen WHO authority for current and future pandemics. And they're betting like like uh, gambling addicts, they're betting and laying their wager that there's going to be new pandemics, not just new uh, variants. So yeah. which is very profitable for the, you know, Albert Borla's of the world and GlaxoSmithKline, among others. Yeah. So yeah, I I believe there are indications of this this symphony of one worlders and trying to make things align better. And Bilderberg and the World Economic Forum are basically two sides to the same coin anyway, uh, sharing ideas and personnel and and uh, objectives. Yes, yeah, so is that a new collective now? Mark has just uh, created symphony of globalists. This is this is this is. Well, I have another word for it, but yeah, well, say well it anyway, there. anyway, look, we're we're out of time. So I just want to uh, I just want to end on this story, which just was I thought was quite shocking. So this is a New York Post, uh, and New York City is basically well, the headline is "City to Junkies, Don't Be Ashamed to Get High," because this is a new poster campaign on the uh, U.S. underground uh, train system. Uh, and here are the posters. Don't be ashamed uh, you're using, uh, so sorry, don't be ashamed you're using, be empowered that you're using safely. And so what the poster's recommending is uh, avoid using, this is fentanyl, mainly they're talking about the oh, worst, geez. the worst drug uh, that you can possibly use and the one which is causing thousands of deaths in the UK, in the US uh, every year. It's empowering. It's empowering. Yes, fentanyl. they're empowering people. So avoid using alone and take turns. Uh, start with a small dose and go slowly. Uh, keep uh, naloxone ready and to hand. That's to deal with any overdose. Uh, avoid mixing drugs and test your drugs using fentanyl test strips. So this is the advice. Uh, and the posters are published by the New York City Department of Health and Mental Hygiene. Uh, and of course, that is the uh, same department which releases statistics on drugs deaths. And the most recent was that 5,800, uh, sorry, 1,580 New Yorkers died from fentanyl overdoses in 2020. Um, so we've got to make sure that uh, that you increase that number as quickly as possible. That's a well-run democratic city there in New York. I would expect nothing less. They've got all bases covered. I like that. It gets better. San Francisco, uh, this is from a few weeks ago now. Drug overdose billboard sends wrong messages. A headline from Fox. Uh, let's just have a look at that. This is from an organization called No Overdose. Do it with friends. Use with people and take turns. Try not to use alone and have someone check on you. So wow. make sure you're doing it. If you're gonna but, if you're gonna OD, do it with a buddy. That's such sound advice. 
Yes. Is that San Francisco? That's San Francisco. Of course, it's yes. Nancy Pelosi's uh, haven, San Francisco. Yes. Another Democrat-run city. So look, we're, we're going we're gonna to leave it with that. Uh, the message is make sure you get high. There you go. Yeah. That's it for this, right. this week. Um, thank you very much uh, to, to Mark and to Ian and you, Patrick, for joining us today. Thank you all for joining us. Uh, we're going to have some uh, an extra uh, in a couple of minutes on the main live stream. But otherwise, we'll be back as usual 1 p.m. on Monday. Uh, have a great weekend and we'll see you then. Bye bye.